June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach is wasting the time of both the buyer and seller at every stage, especially when sellers are using shallow and outdated data. Your organization can overcome these challenges with technology that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to better outcomes, like more pipeline, higher win rates, and larger deals. We call this Deep Sales, and we've built the first Deep Sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com trial. That is linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash trial and get started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Las Vegas at the Mandalay Bay, which is hosting the annual Signature Travel Network's Global Summit. About 2,800 travel advisors, travel providers, all the people who tell you where to go and then make it happen, and we'll be talking to a lot of them during the show. Uh, You know that we're coming from the Signature Travel Network's annual Global Summit right here at the Mandalay Bay, and joining me now, the President and CEO of Signature Travel Network, Alex Sharp. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Peter. You know, you heard the volunteer vacation, uh, the plug that I just gave for the farm. We do that every week for wherever we are in the world. But what I see more and more, there, there was a time not too long ago where the trend was the, quote, volunteer vacation or give back one day or leave the resort for a half a day and do something. We've gotten a little bit above and beyond that now, haven't we? Oh, absolutely. I think there's so many ways to, to give back. 
first of all, I think it's important for travelers to understand that just by going, they're giving back, right? You look at some of the countries and the destinations that people are traveling to, you know, how significant tourism is to their gross national product, how significant it is to their workforce and their economy in general. So that in and of itself is important. But there are a myriad of opportunities uh, to give back. And whether that's giving your time or, or bringing something along with you, there's, there's lots of different ways to do it. And how are you guys doing it? Well, I think for us, you know, we have over 1,400 supplier partners around the world. And so you've got about 2,600 people running around this hotel. Exactly. Right exactly. So for us, it's about understanding how each of them works and what their projects are locally so that we can tap into that. So there are a number of different ways to, to give back while you're traveling. And the thing is, if you don't know about one, all you got to do is ask about one because everybody's doing something these days. They have to be, right? I mean, they, they really have to be. I think every good company in the world is, is digging in locally in some way. It helps them from a, uh, you know, their coworkers, their morale and everything else. So it's just another way to, to participate. We, uh, what we're trying to do is collect that information because you know, we're their travel advisors. We're the, the, the world's travel advisor. And so we have to be able to translate that information to those folks before they leave so that they can, we can engage them while they're in destination in these opportunities. And a number of tour operators, not just travel agents or advisors, but a number of tour operators are going above and beyond. Uh, Dennis Pinto, for example, at, at Mikado, for every safari that you book with his company in Kenya, for example, mm -hmm. they will put one child all the way through school. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, incredible. talk about a tangible, measurable response. No. It's a one-to-one -one commitment that they do. It's in their DNA, though. That, that family is just incredible. And I know we had a group of, of travel advisors there earlier this year, and it changed lives. We ended up, their one-to-one -one is for local school, and it's, it's hugely impactful for these, for these kids. They have another option for their, for their travelers if they want Right? They can engage uh, at a boarding school level. So they can sponsor a child to go way to boarding school, out of the slum. And we sponsored 50 kids one day. And to watch, I mean, these kids are leaving, you know, the poorest of the poor areas and going off to boarding school. Not only are they, do they have great hope, but their families have great hope as a result. I mean, education, as you know, it's the, that's the thing that changes lives. But part of the education you mentioned is not just... Uh, educating the suppliers, it's educating your clients. They have to understand what's possible, right? There's there's nothing more frustrating uh, for for a customer to be in destination and think about what they could have brought to help or what they how, what they could have done in advance to set it up. You know, we were fortunate because we knew the program so well that we had we had already identified the 50 children. Mikado had gone through their careful selection process and everything else. So it was very simple for us, but we could we could see those rewards right there and in person meet those kids, which was phenomenal. And, you know, then there's the follow-up, right? I mean, it's not just, you know, going to a school with pencils or, or dropping off uh, supplies. It's a one-to-one -one relationship in which, you know, you continue the conversation. There's no one that's ever done charity work or give back or whatever you call it that hasn't gotten more in return, right? Everyone says the same thing. I give X, I get back X times, you know, 10. And, and that's certainly the case here. You know, we hear from these kids twice a year. They write to us, but you become part of their lives. I, I sponsored a kid 10 years ago. He's in university now. He's changing his family's life. And, and you know, it, frankly, more than what we've done for him, what it's done for my children and my family, to be involved in that, to give them context and everything else is just amazing. 
Now, you joined Signature, what, about eight or nine years ago? Nine years now. Nine years now, yeah. But before that, the, the, the story that I love is you were running some Kinko stores. Before my, uh, I was at a cruise line before that, and then before which, that, which, I was at a cruise Kinko line? store. Regent Seven Seas. Okay, great. Well, and I that, started, it was Radisson. It was. Yeah, it was well, a long time ago. Well, now ago. it's everything. It's, it's Regent, it's Oceania, it's, it's Norwegian. They've all come together. I have. <laughs> but let's talk about Kinko's. Okay. <laughs> We can do that. So basically now in your new role or your, your nine-year role or 10-year role at, at Signature, you are a real stickler for a good print job. Exactly. The marketing <laughs> team doesn't want to talk to me. Everything has to be perfect. Uh, they, uh, you know, I tell you, what Kinko's taught me was two things. One was you know, certainly an eye for detail. And customer service was the other thing, right? I mean, it's funny. I, I had much more stress working at Kinko's and managing Kinko's and then owning Kinko's than I ever have in the travel industry. So you have to, customer service is there. They're right in front of you every minute of every day. Well, speaking of customer service, I want to run some things by you in terms of how you work with your own travel advisors and the travel providers in that customer service equation. Um, I see this happening more and more where there's something that goes wrong on a cruise ship. It could be there's a weather issue and they have to divert and cancel a port. It could be they have a mechanical issue and they have to cancel a port. It could be the norovirus. It could be any one of a number of things that gets in the way, obstructs, or somehow diverts what everybody had planned, right? And in many cases, what the cruise line thinks is going to be acceptable is to say, sorry, we didn't do X, Y, or Z. Here's 20% off on your next cruise. And the passengers just revolt. You know, I mean, they're literally, they're, they're more than just signing petitions. They're standing on the top deck of the ship in the world of viral media, holding up signs saying, we want a full refund. I mean, what are you telling your clients what are your, or, or your advisors? What are your advisors telling their clients? Or what are you actually telling the, the travel providers, in this case, the cruise lines, as to how to recover in an appropriate and meaningful way? Well, you know, I, first of all, I think the cruise lines have learned a lot over the years. I know my years at the cruise line, for a long time, I ran revenue management, so it was what it, what was it going to cost me to fix this problem? <laughs> and and so basically, you were the accountant. I was the accountant in yeah. some ways, and then I learned you know very what I like quickly. To say. You know what I like to say? What's that? When the accountants are on the asylum, everybody goes crazy. <laughs> That's very true, but you know, I had to figure out, and we had to figure out that sometimes being overly generous was was much easier. Not certainly not easier to write the check, but the goodwill. And the good right. PR it's not how much it cost, it's was how much so much it's worth. And, and social wasn't as prevalent back then when yeah. I was doing that. But now it's even more so. So what I'm seeing, whether it be river cruise lines that sometimes have chains or ocean cr changes, uh, sometimes ocean cruise lines, the issues that you said, is generally speaking, they're being more generous. Now, there's always those customers that say, gosh, they fixate on that was the one port on the whole 10-day itinerary that I wanted, that I wanted right. to go to. And what I tell the customers is, Enjoy the rest of the cruise, have as much fun as you can, and leave it to the advisor to work to with, figure with out our plan partners. B. Right? The good news is one of the reasons they're using an advisor is because we're aggregating business. We have you know, a relationship, a partnership with these cruise lines. And at the signature level, right, instead of it being an advisor that maybe does 100000 or an agency that does a million, it's a network that does $100 million. So I'd rather be the one asking the question and making sure that they're getting a fair response than the, than right, the, the customer. Right, because it's also based on the travel provider's relationship with you. Absolutely. We're speaking with the president and CEO of Signature, Alex Sharp. Alex, uh, we're still laughing about my trip in vain. That's, it's a different ticket category. It is a different ticket category. Yeah. I'm not sure how they, how they code that, how the accountants code that. Right? But you see, I can, I can now apply that code to a lot of other things in my life. Did you, you get miles? Oh, I didn't. <laughs> I, I, got, I got miles in vain, I suppose. I got too. miles in vain. <laughs> but you, know, you, you come up with different categories like dinner in vain, date in vain, you know, <laughs> life in vain. 
and see what you qualify for. Yeah, it's <laughs> so going back to the, to, the, to the delivery of the service and how people recover, because that's the key in the, in the service industry. Absolutely. Who recovers well in your mind? Gosh, you know, I think it's an individual thing. It's about companies that empower their people, right? And, and it's funny, I'll go back to Kinko's for a second, right? I remember my first week on the job, you know, I made some copies for a fraternity or something. I was at university working part-time and the guy came back and he said, I didn't want these in, in pink. And so being a good new employee, I ran to the back and looked for a manager and he said, well, figure it out. Let's make the customer happy. And, and the more I understood about the process, the more I knew, hey, you can take the pink at half off or I could make you them on green or you could do whichever. But the companies that do customer service the best are the ones that empower the people at the front line. Yeah. And you know that's really and truly, in my mind, the difference between the, the great companies, the great hotel companies, the great airlines and so forth, and those that are second. I remember when Richard Branson first started Virgin, with his first 747. And remember, he only had one plane. So if the plane was not working, it was not going to be on time. Right. Uh, and for a period of time, then he got a second plane, a third plane, but he still had some on-time performance problems. And he had it as a matter of procedure that they would alert him if there was a plane that was either late leaving or late arriving, and he'd go out to the airport and personally apologize. Wow. That would be powerful. Yeah. Now, I don't think he's doing a lot of it these days. But the, either that means they're either all on time or there's so many that are late, it's impossible to do it. But the point is, it was a gesture that was appreciated. No, it is. And I think for, for many things, it's about recognizing the issue, acknowledging it, you know, having, if it's a ship captain or a hotel manager or whichever it is, and acknowledging that there's a problem. And once you do that, you can diffuse the situation and then you can attack what, you know, what do we do to make it right? But then it gets back to your, tr your own travel advisors and their preferred supplier relationships because... Who better to make it better than somebody who's already in the conversation? Oh, no doubt. We have to lean on them. Once the trip starts, right, we can contribute. We can be there with them virtually along the way. But the reason we have preferred partners, the reason, you know, we don't have all partners at this conference is because we want to make sure that the ones we have are the ones that are most committed to our customers. And who understand that if, if one of your travel advisors calls, or maybe even Alex Sharp, and says, hey, look, there was a problem with Mrs. Schmidlap on this cruise, and you missed three ports, and she didn't get her you know, baked Alaska. Now I'm dating myself. But she didn't get her baked Alaska, that they'll do something. Absolutely. And, and that's, we want that to happen organically on board, and I think most of our partners do that automatically. But... That's the reason, in my mind, one of the reasons to use the travel advisors because then they have a little more clout, right? They have several customers that are going on a particular brand, and then that's why our travel advisors are affiliated with a company like us, like Signature, because then we have even more clout. So if it gets to that point, it rarely does, but if it gets to that point, then heck, if I have to make a call to make it right, then we'll do that. What do you see happening in the year coming up? Because we see more and more people flying. 1.4 billion people will cross the border this coming year. It's like staggering. Uh, and we're not even dealing with the, the growth in China or the growth in India. We're just talking worldwide we're seeing this, right? And yet we're seeing a drop in travel to the United States. We're seeing the Chinese travel dropping off because of the trade wars with the U.S. We're seeing the Europeans not traveling as much to the U.S. because of Brexit, the continuing craziness about that. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the power of the U.S. dollar against the, the British pound or the, or the euro. What are you seeing in terms of those trends? Right. Well, so almost the opposite, because our guests, most of our folks are, are traveling abroad. Yeah. Right, certainly we do a, a fair amount of travel within the U.S., but those traveling abroad are finding great value. Exactly. Not only that, we're, I'm seeing airfare sales that are extending 9, 10, 11 months because there's no, if those seats aren't being filled with the people coming to the U.S., then there are a lot of empty seats going back. Yeah. 
No, it's a balancing act. And I mean, we had uh, Australia present to us uh, earlier in the conference and they were talking about all these great things. And obviously it's an incredible, incredible destination but not the least of which uh, on the points of reasons to go is that their, their dollar is undervalued right now. So the, the value proposition for a U.S. tourist going there is just over the top. Yeah, what I try to explain to everybody, it's not the cost of the airfare or the hotel room. It's basic cost of goods and services that the locals pay for that you would also pay for, whether it's a cab ride, a bus ride, a night in the town, a loaf of bread. Uh, a new a new pair of shoes. I mean, they can't adjust those for their currency fluctuations. They can't. And and so whether it's a shopping trip or whether it's about the experience or whichever it is, there's there's a lot of opportunity there, a lot of savings. And it's not just Australia, right? Throughout Europe, there's there's opportunities for us. And so what we're finding is, you know, and depends on on the economy. When you look at cruises as an example, oftentimes people would say when when the dollar's undervalued. Cruises are a better value because you're buying in dollars and you're executing there. But really everything, when you get off the ship. That's a good point. When you get off the ship, you're still spending in local currency, right? Right. So, you know, there's there's an advantage whether the dollar's up or down, I think. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. You know, there's a word, a six-letter word, and nobody can ever define it. They have meetings on it. They have conferences on it. They have symposiums on it. They have groups debating it. And we're lucky enough because the guy who's going to be joining me right now can actually do that. He can actually define this six-letter word because he happens to be the CEO of its institute, Milton Pedraza, the CEO of the Luxury Institute. I like that, Milton. All right, now I'm putting you on the spot. Can anybody really define luxury? I mean, I'll tell you how I define it. Please. I define it as time, and I define it as options. Those are my two words. If, if I have options when I travel, that's a luxury travel, whether I ever use those options or not. If I have time, that's a luxury because I have choices then. The biggest problem about airline travel today is what do they do? They take away your options. There goes the luxury, <laughs> right? You're always told what all the things you can't do, right? Anyway, that's my definition. What's yours? I'll tell you, there are several definitions that I can give you, but I'll narrow it down to a a couple. I think you're right about time. Time, people say, is the ultimate luxury. I would add that it's the experience and the return on the investment of that time, the richness of the experience. Yeah, but if you don't have the time, you can't get the experience. Absolutely, but I think that people are learning to reconfigure their time and their lives these days. Although, I'll give you another example of that. You know, I've had people on the show before who, who claim they have the world record of being to more destinations than anybody else in the world, and I really say, okay, what, how do you define that? Did you jump off the ship and touch the land and go back on the ship and say you were there? That doesn't count. I need to know that you were there, right? So if you're redefining your time because you don't have as much, you can come back and check off a box and say, I've been everywhere, but you haven't. You just happen to be passing by. I think you're right, absolutely right. I've been to probably 120 plus countries, but it was mostly business. Uh, and so. So you saw a lot of hotels. I did. I also met with a lot of people. I think when you do business, right. you get to know the people fairly well. But you're absolutely right. It wasn't like I was doing sightseeing in every country. Since then, I've sort of doubled back and tried to do what the affluent do, which is try to enjoy the uh, different world locations. The well, you know, when, you, when you're seeing people and you're doing business, that brings up another word of mine that is one of my favorite words, something that we've lost the art of, and that's the word conversation. So 
I'm not a big fan of teleconferencing. Now, if you're, if you're going to be at IBM and you want to talk to your sales department within the company, I can understand why you'd have a teleconference. But if I want to go meet somebody for the first time and learn from them or have them learn from me or have a, how do you do that unless it's face-to-face? You got to travel. Absolutely. And they say, scientists say that the only way you can really trust someone is to meet with them face-to-face. Right. In fact, they say that all the five senses are involved in developing trust even the olfactory senses. So right now, you and I, our sense how, are how changing. I, how am I smelling to you, Milton? I think you're a very trustworthy person, <laughs> Peter. But it is, you're absolutely right that, that face-to-face, um, the connection that is made is so rich and so deep that uh, it really is required for survival for humans. But one of the things that you do at the Luxury Institute is advise people in the hospitality business as to their definition of luxury and how they can provide it. Yes, and I think it's becoming more and more personal. It is true that uh, affluent consumers especially want what they want when they want it. Sometimes they don't even know what they want, so you have to come up and be creative and innovative. Sometimes they don't know what they want, but they still want it. (laughs) Absolutely, and I think the definition of trust these days also includes that I can trust you to be agile and I can trust you to be creative in the moment as a client. All right, so let me give you an example, and this is a little thing, but when you think about it, when, when you get down to that definition of luxury, it always gets down to the little things. Yes. It's what really pisses people off or, or it rings the wrong bell. So I understand the intention behind this. Every single hotel is getting rid of single-use plastics. They're getting rid of the little soap, yes. the, the, the little soap the, the bottles and the shampoo bottles and the body lotion bottles. I get that. I support that, right? But what are they replacing them with? They're replacing them with dispensers mounted on the wall like a bad high school dorm. <laughs> yes, I, right. In it's luxury, a cost savings for in, them, as you know. It's it is not a cost savings. But I, I get the cost savings part, but I also get the environmental part. But the actual implementation of the of the next generation of soap sends a message that you're no longer in a luxury hotel because you're, you're in a bad high school gym. It can be like that. I think uh, clients are becoming much more sustainability. Uh, I would say demanding. So I think oh, they I understand, understand it. certain yeah, things. Yeah. I don't like, you know, reusing the same towel sometimes because I just want to have a new one, a fresh one. But you understand and you adapt. Yeah, to but that. but be honest. Do you get a new towel every time you take a shower at home? You do not. Absolutely. That's why I feel that I can a- adapt to what hotels are doing these days and respect what they're doing. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. You know, when you talk about, for lack of a better word, affinity groups, groups that travel who have a lot of money to spend, one of the groups that's been neglected since, you know, the jet age and is now coming into its own in the biggest way simply because they're big travelers. They spend their money. They're smart. They know what they want. They do their homework. And believe it or not, contrary to any kind of stereotype you've ever seen in your life, as a group, and I can give you a great example of this, they're the biggest tippers. They're the best behaved. They're the most polite. And forgetting all the negative stereotypes that have been applied against them for years, they're great world travelers. I'm talking about the gay and lesbian community. And joining me now, the Vice President of Global Partnerships for the International Gay and Lesbian Travel Association. I needed to get out that in all one word. You did a good job. I-L- I-G-L-T-A. Did Correct. I Absolutely. Clark Massad. Clark, listen, welcome, first of all. Thank you, Peter. Second of all, I'm going to tell you a story. And this is what got me interested in how the travel industry was discriminating and how the travel industry was, was dropping the ball. This goes back 
to a group in San Francisco, a group of lesbian women that wanted to charter a cruise. And they did. They chartered the entire ship. There must have been 450 to 500 women, and it was a Greek ship. And it's one of the funniest stories. Because here's the captain and crew of this Greek ship, and they get word that they've been chartered by a group of 500 women. And all these guys go, oh, 500 women coming through this ship. And then the women came to the ship, and they went, are you kidding me? Right? They had such a great time. I'm talking about the crew. Absolutely. The women had a great time, too. They had such a great time. They booked the ship every year since. It turned attitudes around. It opened the doors. Because prior to that, most cruise lines wouldn't have even catered to that. They, wouldn't have even, they never would have, would, would have solicited that. Right? Absolutely. And that's on the group level. Where the stereotypes and the discrimination really kicked in, Clark, was on the individual level. So that's some of the work that you're doing. Yeah, and Peter, uh, as a matter of fact, um, I don't know exactly when that story that you just told dates to, but IGLTA was created in 1983 by a group of gay guest house owners and travel agents in southern Florida who recognized exactly the, the situation and the problem that you're sure. referring to. Who is, and most importantly at that time, who isn't gay-friendly? Uh, the, if you think back to the 1980s and the visibility of the gay LGBTQ community at the time, um, you know, sometimes we say the gay community, the gay and lesbian communities, sometimes it's LGBTQ, LGBTQI. Our own logo has uh, evolved. We started out as the International Gay Travel Association in 1983. We added the L in 1987. Oh, you're being so inclusive now. Uh, yes, yeah. and we're even more inclusive now because we're actually referring to ourselves as the International LGBTQ Plus Travel Association. But you know, you bring up an interesting time perspective here because 1982, 1983, that was at ground zero of the AIDS crisis. Absolutely. So you had two things working against you because people didn't understand it. They were afraid of it. They were terrified of it. And then you people want to travel? Well, and the founders of our organization recognized that. And one of the first things they said is we want to present the gay and lesbian community in a positive light. And we want to do that using the social and economic power of travel to really show what a great community this is. And actually, social came second. It was economic that came well, first. Well, economic is always part of the equation. And you mentioned um, uh, higher spending. What we like to say is that the gay and lesbian travelers, have a, they devote a higher percentage of their disposable income towards travel and towards leisure activities. Um, and even though we talk a lot about DINK, double income, no kids, um, you know, today, gay and lesbian, uh, same-sex couples are getting married, they're having children, they're forming families. So there are, there is LGBT family travel, yeah. um, uh, which is a, definitely an emerges, emerging part of the marketplace. And growing. And growing, absolutely. Because with more acceptance comes even better deals, because you're now dealing with numbers. It's your strength is in numbers. Your, the strength is in numbers. Um, uh, when we look at the overall LGBTQ travel, it, the, the, the travel impact of the LGBTQ market in the U.S. is estimated to be more than $100 trillion. Um, so it's, it's a significant market, and anybody that's not going and, after that. <laughs> and when you vote with your wallet, watch out. Well, yeah, there's that also. Oh, there is. Now, here you are at the Signature Travel Networks, so you're working with all the travel advisors and all the travel providers because they now recognize the strength that you have. Well, and it's really been interesting. I was at the trade show yesterday afternoon, and all afternoon it was a constant stream of travel advisors coming up to the booth and saying thank you for being here, thanking IGLTA for uh, being present, 
Um, uh, Signature Travel has made a true commitment to the LGBTQ market. Um, we did a roundtable discussion yesterday. I'm doing two panel discussions tomorrow, uh, a presentation to the partners. So this is a true commitment from Signature Travel to include the LGBTQ community in their, in their efforts and in their support for the advisors. Well, earlier in our segment, I talked about the stereotypes. So let's talk about the challenges. What are those stereotypes that you're still left with? What are the challenges that you have that you still have to overcome in terms of the perception of the gay and lesbian traveler? Well, the interesting thing, you know, uh, the story that a lot of people like to go back to is a same-sex couple arriving at a hotel and they've reserved, uh, you know, a king size, a room with a king-size bed. That goes back to the book. It goes back to the book. There was yeah. a book written by uh, two gay women. I believe the name of the book is "Are You Two Together?" Because it was sort of like asked with complete shock by a front desk clerk when they had booked a room with a single bed. Right. And there are, you know, it, we often talk about how uh, open and welcome and visible uh, the community is in urban centers. But as soon as we get out of those urban centers, into rural areas, into other countries where it is still illegal to be uh, gay or lesbian, many countries where oh, it's, it can it's still it's be punishable. As, it's treated as a felony. Yeah, or it's punishable by the death sentence yes. also. Um, what some of our travel advisors tell us is, you know, my clients are going to want to go to those countries. I've got clients, for instance, um, you know, some of them tell us that they've got clients that want to go to Egypt, and they would prefer that they go with them so that they can mitigate the risks, that they can go and find the right travel providers there uh, to mitigate the risks but they and don't make want it to, as safe as possible. But let them. me go play devil's advocate mm -hmm. here. I would assume the last thing they want to do in the year 2019 is hide their sexuality. Well, and this depends a lot on the individual. Some people are very, very open in the way they travel. Some people, that's just not their lifestyle. It depends on generations also. Uh, so one of the things that we uh, are often discussing is that within the LGBTQ community, we used to be thought of as a niche market. Now we're a market in and of itself. And within that market, there are niches of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender right. travel. And even within the lesbian market or the gay market, there are a lot of different ways of traveling. Some people are going for pride events. Some people are going for cultural. Some people are going for romantic getaway weekends. So it, it really differs. Yeah, I, well, you just said it. You're no longer a niche. No, we're a market. Yeah, and a very strong one. And a very strong market. One of the things I want to talk about is you know, the weaponization uh, of travel. Mm -hmm. uh, when you see certain states or municipalities or locations start to legislate things that are truly uh, anti-civil rights, if you will, or anti-gay or both, mm -hmm. like the bathroom issue in North Carolina, you need to take a stand on that, don't you? We do, and we support our members that are in those areas. Um, uh, IGLTA does not believe in boycotts. We feel that boycotts are actually counterproductive and that it is important for us to support our members that are in those areas. And to engage. And to engage. Riding along in my automobile my baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go
Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Joining me now, the principal at Culture Traveler in, I have to say, Detroit, Michigan, uh, Kareem George. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Well, first of all, Detroit's coming back. Absolutely. I mean, talk about a, a resurgence and a renaissance, and, and they should be celebrated. Yes, indeed. It's amazing to see what's going on at home and Detroit becoming a destination, honestly. More people wanting to visit, hotels opening, shops opening. Detroit has always it's had no longer just music. the Rensen, right? No, absolutely not. There's always been great music and entertainment in Detroit. Well, of course, Detroit. And sports. But now the world is really watching it and visiting as well, which is exciting. Yeah, this could be the Tigers' year again, you know. They, they, <laughs> no, they, they had great pitching, but they didn't quite do it last year. But, mm-hmm. but they've been we, there. We hope. Yeah, we hope. But now it's about getting out of Detroit, too. Mm-hmm. What trends are you seeing right now as we enter 2020? Exotic travel, which is fantastic. It really Define that for me, though. Uh, I define it as not the usual suspect. So there's always strong travel to Europe. Uh, South America is no longer you know, a new trend. People are going to South America We're talking often. Rwanda. We're talking Rwanda. We're talking Uganda. Uh, we're talking Australia, Western Australia. Well, yeah. We're, See, now, Western Australia is, to me, is the great undiscovered, especially the, the, the northwestern part, the Kimberleys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's amazing. And you can do it by cruise ship. Mm-hmm. A number of uh, the Silver Sea goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can also, in Rwanda, unbelievable. And yeah. guess who flies to Rwanda? Cutter. Wow. And okay. Through Doha, which means if you look at the map, you can just use Rwanda as part of a multi-destination piece mm-hmm. as long as you don't mind changing yeah. planes in Doha every yeah. time you want to go. Absolutely. And then, you know, Kenya, you know, the neighbor there with great safari experience. So you do your gorilla tracking, your chimps, and then you do your traditional safari as well. And it's all right there. What destination is surprising you, though, as, as people are asking for it now? Uh, Egypt. And it's not a surprise because it's a fascinating, incredible destination. And by the way, this year is a great year to go. I'm talking about 2020 because that's when they're opening the Grand Egyptian Museum. I've been there. I've been inside the workshops. Mm -hmm. We did a television piece over there with their their amazing restorers and researchers. Mm -hmm. And what's great about this museum is they have 20, I think between 17 and 20 separate workshops and laboratories where they're getting in new finds every day. Amazing. But the best part is you can actually book a tour and go in those rooms with the restorers mm-hmm. and be up front and close with, you know, King Tut's necklace. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean mm-hmm. three feet away from you. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. It's incredible. And I, I was there just last year with a group, uh, which was unbelievable, just exceeded expectations. And I'm looking forward to going back. 
and for the museum, but also to explore more of the country. I mean, it's, you know, the pyramids are iconic, the Nile crews visiting those sites, but there's the Red Sea, there are all sorts of other destinations and lesser known pyramid sites in Egypt to discover. Right, and, and the British Foreign Office finally removed the warning for Sharm el-Sheikh, mm-hmm. and flights are coming mm-hmm. back. Yep. Uh, it's a great uh, stopping off port, especially, you don't have to be a diver, but it doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Red Sea over there is just amazing. Yep, incredible. Yeah. On my list. On your list. All right, what about Jordan? Jordan is beautiful. was there last year as well uh, with a group and seeing increased demand for Jordan as well. Uh, Jordan has always been known as the, the safe destination in the Middle East and incredible food, incredible shopping, uh, incredible sights, obviously, there to see, and central location. So you can combine all of these destinations, which really just maximizes the value and the experience for the traveler. Are you, are you basically trying to... Uh, convince your clients that they should get away from one-dimensional destinations and be, yeah. and bookend some stuff and, and, and do two or three stops. Mm-hmm. Not making it like if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium, but Correct. at least as long as you're in the region, look at, look at hub and spoke. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Maximizing time, maximizing value. So really stretching their dollar, um, stretching their experience overall. So. And by the way, if you ever wanted to figure out if the U.S. dollar was strong, this is the year to do it. Mm-hmm. Whether you're going to Argentina, whether you're going to South Africa, whether you're going to uh, even the euro is depressed against the dollar, the British mm-hmm. pound is depressed against the dollar, mm-hmm. the Thai baht. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though it's not getting just a little small, stronger. Mm-hmm. No, it's you're in the in the driver's mm-hmm. seat. And you're making an impact when you visit these destinations. I was you know, speaking with a, a client just the other day and saying, you know, when you when you go to Egypt, Rwanda, Jordan, these places, and you buy things from local vendors and you visit community workshops, whether it's the Maasai in Kenya or it's an artisan on the street in Cairo, you're making a difference. You are helping a family. You're supporting a small business in a way that isn't insignificant in Paris or London, um, but it's really tremendously impactful in, in other parts of the world. Be a rapid change in cabin pressure. Oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. And for this particular segment, the cruise industry. And joining me now, a frontline player in that, Matt Cervoni, who's the president of Just Cruises and Vacations in the world capital city of... Detroit. Absolutely. Let's hear it for let's hear it for the three one three area code. Absolutely. So Matt, you know we've seen dramatic growth in the areas of cruising, more new ships in the last two years than I can imagine. Every shipyard operating at hundred percent capacity. I mean, if you wanted to build a new ship, you'd have to wait five years. Mm-hmm. And they're coming out of every size and pedigree. But then, then of course, there's the bottom line issue that every traveler wants to know about: pricing. And I'll give you an example. I was just on a cruise Mm -hmm. from Miami to Los Angeles through the Panama Canal on the Norwegian Joy. And 17-day cruise. um, And you know what they were selling the cabins for? Take a guess. Tell me. $460. That's less than $20. You can't wake up in Flint, Michigan for $20 a day. It costs you more to go holiday shopping. Exactly. So the answer, of course, is what's the the actual financial metric at work here that allows a a cruise line to sell cabins at that if it's not for the sake of, uh, you know, maximizing onboard revenue? Where's the balance? We find, you know, in some of those departures or, you know, last-minute sailings, uh, what people are looking out for, they know how to look for the deals. 
and quite often it might be the bottom, the last 10% of the ship that's selling out. But they want to they want to fill up the ship. They want to fill up the ship, and it makes a lot of sense for onboard revenue, and just quite frankly for the overall experience of the passengers, other passengers. So, um, you know, that's certainly a part of the industry. We tend to see a lot of people planning further in advance, which is exciting for us, which is what the cruise lines really do want based on our interaction and relationships with our clients. So we've approached it, our, our, our clients, over. we try to gain a relationship over a 20 year period. We're in it for the long haul. Um, and we provide those experiences by planning in advance. Um, however, we're finding that they may plan that big European cruise for 2020 summer, but they may find a great opportunity because they're semi-retired and, retired, in, right. and they're going to sneak in an extra trip and just so happen to be a great deal on a, on a Panama Canal cruise. I'm going to guess that most of your clients, as a fa in fact, most travelers that I know these days, are doing their research way before they ever pick up the phone and talk to you. Correct. I mean, they don't just call and say, I'd like to take a cruise. Yeah. They're saying, I want to go to the Caribbean for four days, three nights, blah, 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 on this day, and I want to. I don't want to go to that island, but I want to go to this island. What do you got? They're fairly They're very savvy. Yeah. yeah to a certain degree, especially in the, in the winter. It's a lot different than it was 20 years ago when people used to call and say, I want to go somewhere warm in January. <laughs> you know, anywhere in the Midwest, you know, and when it gets gray and ugly outside and the snow outside, people just want to get out and go somewhere warm. Um, and you are selling a lot of cruises in Detroit in, uh, in February. 100%. January 1st <laughs> is the ultimate wave. You know, we're always hoping for the tsunami. Um, and it is interesting because years ago it would start in early January, then it kind of faded to the end of January. And now really, um, we've already started our wave a bit early for this year. And that's the way for people who don't know, that's the big selling season in the cruise industry. Correct. And yeah. what are you seeing coming into that right now? Because you're seeing so much excess capacity now in the cruise industry, right? They got to fill 6,000, 3,000, 9,000. I mean, it gets crazy. Well, we're finding people really um, are, are, are looking at the experiences. I'll use, for example, Coco Cay. Coco Cay has been a, a tremendous attraction for families and quite frankly for couples just getting away because it really well, every, is. Every cruise line has their own island now. Correct. And so Coco Cay belongs to? Royal Caribbean. Right. And then they, and that's their perfect day or their perfect, their perfect day program. Perfect day program. Yeah. Norwegian's island. got one. MSC has a new one yeah. that's opening up. Right. And it's very exciting. It's another wave of interest for, for, for cruisers and for passengers. It's something else to do. It's, a, it's another island to go to. And they really, um, everybody wants you know, blue water, white sand, and palm trees, and they provide—they all provide that to uh, an extreme. By the so, way, they have that here at the Mandalay Bay. They, yes, they, but <laughs> we the just other, can't go there. <laughs> no, you can actually we're go here. there for about an hour. And you <laughs> right. to but the other thing is this: I'm seeing a trend. And tell me if you see it as well, where people want more, either more days at sea or they want more overnights. So they actually get to experience a destination, not just showing up at 8 o'clock in the morning and leaving at 4 in the afternoon. Correct. People are trying to spend a little bit more time relaxing while they're sailing. They're trying to see more, do more. Um, Azamar is an example with their uh, destination immersion where folks are um, excited about overnighting in Monaco or some of the very extravagant places. It's very exciting. And they're willing to spend the extra money for they're it. They're willing to spend the extra money for it because it's all about the experience. You know, if people have the time and the income and um, good health, when those three come together, people travel, and they'll, they'll spend what they need to spend for great experiences. I'm thinking that your, your challenge, if there is one, mm -hmm. is that if we go back to the days of the love boat back in 1970s, mm -hmm. there might have been, might have been 80 ports that, were, that cruise ships called on. Mm -hmm. Today, it's over 1,400, right? I mean, it's sort of like they're sailing to places that didn't even know they had ports. Mm -hmm. They're sailing to Bangladesh. They're sailing to the Russian Far East. They're sailing, of course, the Antarctic programs. But I mean, 
you're, every day you're seeing this sort of like one-upsmanship game playing by the cruise lines as to where we can go next that nobody's ever heard of. It's exciting. It really is. We're expanding the world um, for the average traveler. And, uh, you know, you talk about Galapagos has been out with the new ships, the expedition ships going into that market has really opened people's eyes to, uh, travelers' eyes to new destinations. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Las Vegas at the Mandalay Bay, attending the Signature Travel Network's annual convention, about 2,400 people here, talking about the best, the worst, and the future of travel. Uh, of course, since we're in Las Vegas, it only is fitting to bring back one of our favorites from the Las Vegas Sun, Brock Radke. How are you, man? Great. Thanks for having me. I mean, this place keeps reinventing itself. I, I know I'm here at a convention. We're at the Mandalay Bay which has its own history of, of size and scale. Uh, just to find the room that we're in, I think needed a couple of GPSs and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, a, and, a, and a guide dog. But, but the bottom line is, every time you think Las Vegas can't get any bigger, it gets bigger. Yeah, I agree. Actually, Mandalay Bay, to me, is kind of the uh, epitome of the Las Vegas resort in terms of not just the size of this place, but when you think about all the different amenities and well, entertainment. We're the first ones to put in a beach. Yeah. A Nobody beach. else has one of those. Well, yeah, and they have sharks running around, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this place has its own pro sports team, too, the WNBA Las Vegas Aces. Right. It's the only casino that has a sports team playing inside. Unbelievable. And, of course, let's not forget you've got now your own professional hockey team, which, by the way, most expensive ticket in town for one of those games, and they almost won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, their first year out. Uh, we're in year three now, and uh, the, the fans here in Las Vegas are just as crazy about them as when they first started playing here. And then, of course, not far from where we are right now, they're building a the new stadium for the Raiders. What, uh, have you seen it? It's kind of an ominous-looking structure it right is. now. It is. It's a little intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, it's the Raiders. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to I used to have season tickets to the Raiders when they were in L.A., and I stopped going because too many fights were breaking out. Not on the field, in the stands. Right. <laughs> Those are Raiders fans. So we'll see if we'll see if that fan base translates to Las Vegas. So far, we have a pretty fan, uh, a pretty friendly and congenial fan base for our sports teams here. So that might shake things up a bit. And they changed the rules for many many years. You could not go into a casino and bet on a on a, on a sporting event in which there was a local team playing. Right. You couldn't bet on the on the the basketball team, the, the famous Jerry Tarkanian teams, mm-hmm. and you couldn't bet right. And That's now right. you can. Yeah, yeah, things have opened up quite a bit. You know, Las Vegas has always been a sports town. Before we had major league sports, there were always huge sporting events. And oh, you had the fights. Exactly, exactly. And, and kind of one-off special things. And Allegiant Stadium, where the Raiders are going to play, is going to take that to the next level. There's going to be a lot of other events there besides the, uh, besides the NFL coming. So it's going to be really exciting. And, of course, the one thing that keeps getting crazier and crazier is the food scene. Just to walk from the, from the entrance of this hotel to where we are right now in the convention center, I'm passing by Charlie Palmer's place. I'm pa- passing by, I mean, every, every signature restaurant. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's another thing that Mandalay Bay has that as good or any other casino on the Strip is a portfolio of restaurants, but, runs but, the full but, spectrum, not just fine dining, casual stuff. They but got Brock, everything. let's be honest. You can't be a casino in Las Vegas unless you have a signature restaurant of a, of a celebrity chef. Yeah, you've got to have either a celebrity chef or, a, you know, a, a, a French, a, a really high-level French restaurant. You, you really have to have the whole spectrum, a lot of different kinds of ethnic food, a, a great steakhouse. These are all prerequisites. You've got to have them. Right. And when I first came to Las Vegas, it was prime rib and a potato, and you had the ten, you know the eight o'clock show, and they threw you out. That's right. <laughs> That's what happened. But then, of course, in the wine scene here, you have what twenty-five of the top forty-five sommeliers are based in Las Vegas. That's right. That's right. Yeah, this is a total industry stronghold as far as wine. The cocktail scene has exploded here as well. There's a lot of really cool boutique cocktail bars in every casino now. It's expanded quite a bit. All right, so now we're, we're coming into the holidays. We're just about, what, 11 days away from, uh, from Christmas. What's happening? Is Las Vegas a, a good place to be at Christmas? I think it's a great place to be at Christmas, but I'm a Christmas guy, and I've lived here for a long time, so maybe I'm a little bit... So you've already strung the lights. I'm, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I did that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but forgetting that, I mean, does Vegas empty out during Christmas? This is kind of... Uh... Right about now, and maybe last week, if there's such a thing as a slow time in Las Vegas, this is when it happens, kind of between Thanksgiving and Christmas, but there's still a lot going on. The rodeo uh, always comes to town in December, and that brings a lot of big-name country music acts playing here, and I think we've got more of those this year than ever. Uh, we don't really have a slow time. I probably shouldn't even characterize it that way because that does not exist on the Las Vegas Strip. Anymore. All right, so it, it, we'll give you the Chamber of Commerce interpretation, a less busy time. <laughs> right, right. Would that work for you? Yeah. But then again, right after Christmas, it gets crazy because New Year's. That's right, that's By right. By the way, you, uh, with all due respect, you could not pay me to either be here or in Times Square for New Year's. Sorry, ain't going to happen. Yeah, uh, most of my career coming up in newspapers here, you know, you're on that lower lower ladder part and you've got to go work the strip on New Year's Eve. Thankfully, I've been around long enough. I don't catch that assignment anymore. <laughs> well, when I was growing up in New York, we lived on the 13th floor uh, in, in an apartment. And on New Year's Eve, I was allowed to, what, stay up late. And we, I'm, I'm dating myself now. And we'd watch Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians play from the ballroom of the Waldorf Astoria. And when the ball came down, from the Astor Hotel and said, okay, Happy New Year. And then the band would play, you know, Old Lang Syne. I was allowed to go in the kitchen where my mom had a collection of Revere wear, all these pots and pans, and she gave me a huge ladle. And I went to the window, I opened the window, and I got to bang around some pots and pans, and then I went to bed. You know what? I like that then. I like it now. That's it. <laughs> I think I'm going to try that this year. I'm going to bang around some pots and pans. It's a whole lot less expensive. <laughs> And you don't have to worry about a designated driver, right? Pickpockets, craziness, trying to get a cab at, you know, one in the morning, good luck, not going to happen. I mean, why would you do that, right? But other than that, you do have stuff that pops up for Christmas here. Yeah. My favorite thing is, you know, there's very grand decorations in the hotel lobbies and around different parts of these casinos. At Christmas time, it gets even more over the top. Uh, I was down recently at the shops at uh, Crystal's, which is a luxury mall near the Aria Resort. They have a 55-foot Christmas tree that has 5,000 Swarovski crystal ornaments on it. It is astonishing. And 2,000 security guards. It, it needs that many security yeah. guards. Hey, like the last time I was here and you were on the 
show. They, I had just seen a dress rehearsal of a, show, of a weird Cirque du Soleil show at Luxor, right? Called Run, which is not acrobatic anymore. It's stunts, mm-hmm. right? With motorcycles. I, I've never seen the full show. Yeah, it's here now. You need and to go check it out. Did you like it? I did like it. it it's, it's kind of a polarizing show. There's been uh, good reviews and bad reviews so far. Uh, I think that that's called life. It's very specific. Oh, it's like a genre show. It's an action show. So if you're a fan of action movies and horror movies and graphic novels and that kind of stuff, then you're going to appreciate this show. It's, so it's a really Bruce innovative. Lee, Fast and Furious crowd is going to like this. I think so. I think Hello? so. I'm feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I would be remiss if I didn't invite my next guest to talk about this city. Uh, And she is the host of Flip the Strip. I love that, Uh, which is a talk show right here in Las Vegas. Melinda Shekels, how are you? Thank you so much for having me, Peter. Great to be here. Nice to be on the other side of the mic for once. That's right. As the interviewee. I love it. I love it. How long have you lived in Las Vegas? Uh, Almost 13 years now, which is pretty incredible to believe. I thought I'd be here for a couple months. And what brought you here? I actually, um, I'm a magazine editor by trade and uh, talk show host uh, in my spare time, but uh, I came here to work for a publication called Vegas Magazine. And here you are. And here I am. But that was a brave new world for you. Totally, it was. I was working originally in a a business publication for architects and interior designers, jumped over here to Las Vegas. My mom lived here for a few years prior to me moving here, and I've never looked back since. Vegas has been very, very good to me. And it's almost impossible to wake up every day without discovering, I mean, a new hotel, a new attraction, a new club, a new bar. I mean... It's a constant city of reinvention Um, and overnight. I mean, and whether it's restaurants, whether it's clubs, whether it's museums, not necessarily always on the strip. Right, correct. And definitely over the last couple of years, we've seen a tremendous shift. Um, in, in 13 years, I cannot tell you, Vegas was a different place 13 years ago when I moved here. We didn't even have an Ikea at that time. Oh, and oh I, my God. It How was did our pipe dream. I mean, it was at that time, we didn't even have a crate and barrel. I mean, those things were no, our no dreams. No Ikea, no meatballs in Vegas. I got right. it. Right. Those things were our dreams at that time. Like one day we'll be a big city. And the, the entire landscape is completely shifted in the last 13 years, it shifts, you know, every couple years, we really shed skin a lot faster than a snake does. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's a price to be paid with that, too. There is. You know, it's smart growth. You know, we went through a terrible time, obviously, during the recession in 2009. The housing market really plummeted. Um, overinflation of, of the housing market and an incredible influx of people coming from California always seems to kind of be our ebb and flow. So we really have to watch kind of smart growth in the city and not overextend ourselves. Is there we such s- thing, I have to ask the devil's advocate question, is there such thing as smart growth in Las Vegas? Well, you know, we're looking at a time now where we haven't really seen a lot of new room product uh, pop up on the Strip. So since the Cosmopolitan opened, there hasn't been a new hotel opening in almost 10 years. You've so had while new, you've you had feel, new hotel names, right? While you feel that there's a lot going on or shifts, you know, obviously SLS opened, taking over the Sahara, and now it's back to Sahara. But in terms of brand new hotels on the Strip, we haven't had any in in 10 years, and we will see over the next. Uh, you know, three years, an opening of two to three major resorts. The Drew? 
The Drew. We will have the Drew. We'll have that, that was originally World. built as the Fountain Blue. Correct. Which was sat vacant for God knows how long. Almost ten years yeah. now. Yeah, I had the opportunity to tour it. The building is in incredibly good shape. Everyone always asks, you know, having having sat exposed to the elements for so long and being, I mean, it was pretty much structurally complete. Uh, you know, how it how how did it fare? And it, very very well. I was in there recently. And then Resorts World will be coming online as well. So two major new properties. Um, you know, renovations and revamp abound and then even potentially you know more coming online i'm expecting there'll, there'll come a day in the not too distant future where the strip itself will be closed to traffic uh because it's just too much out of control now right um they'll, they'll just make it a, a, a biking and walking mall yeah that's been toyed around with that concept you know obviously on new year's eve it is close to traffic um you know i think that there's still kind of a mystique and beauty to driving down the las vegas strip that people love i mean it's our greatest free attraction right and when okay tell the truth when you got here did you rent a convertible and drive down the strip i've never actually done that but boy that would that be fun <laughs> I, I you know i drive down the strip every single day that you stop seeing it so uh you know it was funny the other day when i talk about driving down the strip someone brought up the mirage volcano because we just hit the anniversary of the mirage i believe it was the third year last week or two weeks ago and i haven't seen the mirage volcano erupt in about five or six years not because it doesn't erupt every single day all day it's because you don't even notice it anymore that's when you know that you're a las vegan when you don't see the volcano explode i'll remember you said that well speaking of the volcano explode what is happening now that's new and different that people have not discovered yet. Yeah, we've seen an incredible, incredible boom of off the strip, which is kind of what we, you know, By as locals. By the way, locals, if you want the best uh, Thai, Korean, or Chinese food, you go off the strip into those sure. little strip malls on yeah. on Paradise or Tropicana. Yeah. And, you know, you may have to wait for an hour to get your table because every local who knows what they're talking about is in there. Is there, but correct. great restaurants. Yeah, I mean, we have a tremendous, obviously, collection of Asian restaurants kind of in what we call Chinatown, but it's a very loose term. But off the strip is really where it's at. So we've seen a lot of chefs shift from strip properties that kind of came up with the big names, you know, the Guy Savoies of the world, the Gordon Ramsays of the world. Uh, they've, they've shifted off the strip and have opened their own places now because we really do have, once we kind of hit that 2 million and growing population mark, we have an invested local population that can support local businesses. Now, there seems to never be enough people to support as many great ideas as we have. So sometimes things take a long time to develop. Like? Um, you know, we can always say that when, when we know someone's going to open a restaurant, it's going to take an extra six months than what we anticipated. You know, a lot of uh, buildings and strip malls and things need to be modified. We don't have a tremendous amount of new construction in terms of those things. Uh, so especially also, too, in places like downtown, the city can be a bit tough on uh, requirements and permits and things like that. Uh, so, you know, for a long time, it was focused primarily on the resort corridor. So we have a lot of those really wonky kind of grandfather Vegas things. But, that are just, <laughs> but uh, that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Old school. Definitely old, old school. Yeah, that but, still exists. But but I, I think there's almost like a backlash on the strip now where people want to go off the strip. Totally. And a lot of that has to do with social media. I mean, we're such a foodie culture, even than where we were a decade ago. And a lot of that is because of Instagram and people looking at social media to decide, make their decisions where they eat. They used to look at magazines, speaking from the magazine editor perspective. But now they look at, you know, user generated content. And that's a big thing. And, you know, that bothers me. I have to tell you, we have a society now that's spending more time documenting their experience than having it. Right. You know, there has to be a balance. There definitely has to be a balance with that. And also, too, you know what is 
really, really helped Las Vegas in terms of getting people off the strip has been Uber and Lyft ride sharing. Tremendous, tremendous uh, benefit to people exploring because before it was so difficult, taxis here, getting a taxi out and in, and now with ride sharing, I mean, it's all right here in the palm of your hand. So. And the, and the, and the taxi lobby has not tried to destroy Uber and Lyft? In the beginning they did, but the force was too powerful. They couldn't stop it. Okay, I'm gonna they share, shut it down. I'm going to share with you a figure that I know that is going to surprise you. How many registered Uber drivers are there in Las Vegas? Oh, my goodness. Take I'm a guess. I'm excited to hear. Take a guess. Go wild. No idea. Take a guess. I don't know. 100,000? <laughs> well, you're a little high. It's 50,000. Is that a lot? That is, you bet cities. that's a yeah. lot. 50,000. Yeah. Now, by definition, they're mostly all part-timers, but we have no idea right. when they're working. Right. 24 hours a day. Obviously, here in the city, yeah. you can make, you know, the, the witching hours, as we like to call them, from 2 to, you know, 6 to 8 a.m. are the, probably the best time. I always ask the Uber drivers, you know, how, when kind of the best moments for them are. And it's you know you got a problem with surge pricing if it's between 2 and 6 in the yeah, morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. You do. And also when conventions are in town, obviously that's when the biggest surges are. But other than that, for locals, it's been great to have the convenience of Uber and Lyft. And plus, we have drinking 24 hours a day. So it really... And you would know that because? <laughs> we would definitely know that because the bars are open 24... And we have gaming 24 hours a day. And, uh, you know, you so need to... So there's no last call. There's no last call. And you need to have reliable transportation as a result because prior to Uber and Lyft, we also had a tremendous vehicular death issue. I mean, our car insurance is extremely high. It's one of the trade-offs that we pay for not having income tax uh, as well. And, uh, you know, when I came from California, my car insurance, like, tripled. Wow. Tripled. Whoops. Yeah. yeah. I know. But we don't pay income tax, so... <laughs> Okay, so you haven't given up your car? You're not, you're not an Uber 24 No, I haven't, but I spend enough on it as I probably should because every single night when I go out, it's always a rideshare situation. Okay, now I can't let you go without this. Yeah. Give me the hot new dive restaurant. Oh, the hot new dive. Okay, so we've got an amazing spot. It, it's it's called the Sand Dollar, and it's it's a bar primarily, but they also serve incredible pizza. It is off the Strip. It's located, um, you know, on Spring Mountain, and they have live music acts. And a lot of the performers come over after the shows, like band member, like Ringo Starr's son was performing there one night when I was there. It is a fantastic bar. It's been there for many, many years, but it was recently revamped by three people in the culinary industry, and it has just a great vibe, great pizza. Uh, great drinks and a total I would say kind of a divey vibe yeah definitely sand dollar come fly with me let's fly let's fly away if you can use some exotic booze there's a bar in far Bombay come on and fly with me Let's fly, let's fly Always an opportunity away. to talk to the frontline travel people who are either travel providers, travel advisors, or just travel gurus about where they see travel going, especially at this time of the year as we're about to enter 2020. Joining me now, the managing partner for Frosch Whalen Travel back in Massachusetts, Karen Schragel. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me here today. Yeah. So from your perspective... You know, we, we see certain things that, you know, are just undeniable. 1.4 billion people are going to cross an international border this year. Uh, more cruise ships coming out. Uh, airlines that we've never even heard of starting to fly. Going back to the original days of deregulation, where you see a lot of long-haul, low-cost or low-fare, not necessarily low-cost uh, carriers in the marketplace. And different second and third city pairings going on. So it's not just going from, like, you know, JFK to London, it's going to the tertiary and, and even fourth level cities in the United Kingdom or the same thing in France, you know, 
flights to Lyon instead of just Paris. Where do you see the trends happening from your clients and from the business that you're doing uh, coming up in, in the next year? Capitalizing on uh, primary market space in terms of uh, carriers, working with alliance carriers so that they have the protection in the long run. So, so you're talking about Star Alliance, Star Alliance or One World, One World or Sky Team. Or Sky Team, absolutely. Now, most people don't understand how those alliances work. Uh, code sharing is still very confusing. You go to a departure board and you see 85 flights listed for one departure, which means that uh, at least in theory, there's inventory on that plane held by all those airlines. Um, and people get so confused as to what gate they're going to, they still don't understand that you know, a Lufthansa flight is still a United flight, which is still a, an ANA flight, even if it's just going from New York to Frankfurt. Uh, to what extent are your clients still getting beaten up by code sharing? Um, one of the biggest problems is that they don't fare the same. So it may be That's, a cafe flight. Oh my God, you're flight. so right. Oh my God, this, this is the, the issue that I do not understand. I go online, by the way, I do not make reservations online most of the time because I have a conversation with people. But I look at online for research. And I will see, if you scroll down, uh, whether it's Orbitz or Travelocity or Expedia, you'll see a New York to London flight that's listed as an American flight, as a BA flight, as an Iberia flight, um, as a Finnair flight, uh, as a Royal Jordanian flight. And it's, for the same coach seat, it can vary from $600 to $2,200. On the same seat, on the same flight. And it's worth, worse with business class, too. So you really have to watch out for that. And you're so right. So you can have a Hong Kong flight on Cafe that's $2,000 higher than selling it on the American code share. That's why people need travel advisors in order to get them through this. you gotta de- you got to decipher that. And the other thing you, that most people make the mistake of, when you go online, you will see the lowest fare listed first. What most people don't look at is the length of the flight, right? So you'll see a $600 flight from New York to London listed as 23 hours because it's stopping in Topeka, you know, Bayonne and, uh, you know, Ireland. Um, and then, of course, the nonstop is 1400 But people don't get that. They're not, they're not doing their homework because either they're not looking at that list of how long the flight lasts or they're never getting to page two, three, or four of the website to find out that they paid for basic economy and they're going to be charged for breathing, well, that's, that's the priority that you have in terms of your client. Um, we have to make sure that they're buying properly. That's we're professional shoppers. And we shop passionately for our clients and making sure that they're getting the best value and understanding what they're buying. By the way, there's a rumor out there, Karen, that American is thinking of getting rid of basic economy because it's, it's actually angered so many people. I believe that that's a good idea. With Many agencies are set up not to even sell them because they get into such problems with it. And in terms of is that, your, is that your agency as well? Well, we can set it on or off, so we can choose to turn it off. We choose to turn it off. Right. So basically, you are a no basic economy agency. We're avoiding it. Yes. Yeah, because it's just ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching for breathing. I mean, it's well, crazy. plus they're throwing it away. It's not like they can reuse it. It's not and reissuable. Here's the other thing that nobody wants to talk about. Many of your clients are multi-million milers. Many of your clients are big frequent flyers. They already have status at the airline, but they want a low fare too. So they mistakenly get a low fare and then find out that they're not getting the mileage they thought they were getting. Not only that, they've got to pay for their bags. They don't get a seat assignment, right? They can't even get a carry-on bag on some of these basic fares. It's crazy. Yeah, but I hope our clients aren't getting that bad advice. So I'm assuming that they aren't and they're not actually making those mistakes. Well, actually, we have five of your clients here today who want to talk. No, <laughs> but the bottom line is you're dealing with a situation where the public is not getting full disclosure. Same thing with drip pricing in hotels and those terrible resort fees that are not disclosed when they're, getting their, when they're making their reservation. Yeah, our GDS system set up that we have to disclose if it's a code share immediately and we get a pop-up that reminds us that we have to disclose it. Right, and hopefully when you disclose it, you also let them know what they need to know. 
not just that, oh, you're sharing it with ANA. That, that doesn't resonate with anybody until you tell them what it means. Yeah, it's a lot of work to train people to do this right. Exactly. So is code sharing here to stay? I'm assuming it is. It certainly is. And also coaching people on having the right credit cards so they can grow their miles on the right carriers. So that's a big advantage too. Now, does American Express Platinum still do the two-for-one deals? Um, they act, No, it's gone. June it's gone. 2016, that was eliminated. That was it. No more. No more. The thing that also drives me nuts is that people who have an American Express card, they're told that you, know, you can go to the Centurion Lounge now at the airports, which is their lounge. Now they're saying you can only stay for three hours. <laughs> you know, there's actually a misconception about the American Express Platinum card. They have a five times um, miles on dollars spent on airline tickets. If we issue the tickets and we're not an American Express affiliate, as long as it's um, plated by the carrier who takes the charge, they still get their five times for every dollar spent on the carrier's Fargo, ticket. Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Mattawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tokyo. On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Right. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, spare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Someone who knows a lot about the cruise industry because he sells a lot of it. He's the president of All Travel, based not too far away from here in Los Angeles, California. Eric Marinoff, how are you? Very good. Pleasure to be here with you. We're seeing so many new ships coming out. And I talked about this earlier in the show with, with Matt Cervoni, too. And every shipyard is full in terms of production capacity. You're seeing ships of all pedigrees and sizes coming out. All the, but the real key right now is the luxury expedition ships, right? The ones that... You know, if you took a look at the old ships you used to go down to the Galapagos or up to the Arctic, they were converted icebreakers or old research ships where the accommodations were eh, but you had the experience. Now, we're talking plush, lush, spas, great dining, celebrity chefs. Oh, and by the way, you'll be in a Zodiac, too. You got that right. And that's a, the growing trend is expedition. And people are willing to pay for it. Absolutely. Those ships are filling up. And more and more, as you just said, more of them are being built for, for the next couple of years. When you think about this, is that a good indicator of, of the overall health of the economy? Absolutely. Travel is always an indicator of the economy. But I think that the growth of exploration is, uh, as our baby boomers age, the fact that they've got money, to, money uh, and they've traveled everywhere. They've been there, they've done that, and they're looking for new destinations and new experiences. See, I have another sort of a metric that I look at, and I call it the last supper mentality. And the last separate mentality is you've got somebody who you just described as a boomer who's got the money, and, and they're looking at the state of the economy. They're looking at the state of the politics in America. They're looking at the state of just the general emotional capacity of this country right now. And they're going, you know what? If we don't go X now, we'll never go. So let's grab them. Everybody's short of granny straps on the, on the roof of the car with the, with the Beverly Hillbillies. Let's take the entire family, the grandparents, the grandkids, the, the parents, and you're seeing multi-generational travel as a direct result of concern about the economy, not necessarily a reflection of it. Absolutely. And, and travel is the experience. It's, it's, you're right. It's all about family and family time. Uh, people are saying, if not now, when? So they're making their plans and they're traveling. And we've got more people with multiple trips on the books than ever before. People that are already booking their cruises for 20, 21. I've got clients that are already booking 22. Really? I know. It's amazing. 
And I think if the books were open on the cruise lines for 23, I've got clients that would be booking that as well. Are you finding that they're not doing the traditional destinations? They don't want to just go to Nassau, but they want to go to, uh, I'll give you the wild... Not that you can cruise there, but Chernobyl, or they want to go to, to Bangladesh, or they want to go to the Russian Far East. It all depends on where they are in their traveling life. The, the Caribbean still is very popular, and if you've never been, then people love going there. But as time goes by, or people start traveling at a younger age, uh, they're ready for new destinations and going beyond where they've been. Uh, so Caribbean's still strong. The big ships do really well down there. Great for families and multi-generation, as you said. But for those that have been there and done that, it's time to go on to other things, be it the Galapagos or Antarctica and or of the course, Arctic. And by the time you go to other things, you're going to those destinations on smaller ships. Absolutely. Those, those are destinations with very high restrictions of the number of passengers and how many people can be on land at a given time. So those remain very small ships, as you said. Are you a big ship guy? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I once got in trouble when I went on the air on, on CBS a couple of years ago and said, some of these ships are so big, they've got high crime areas on board. <laughs> uh, because you're dealing with a city. I mean, 6,000 passengers, 3,000 crew, that's almost 10,000 people. And you know what? There's a ship for everybody. There's people that love the big ships, and if you're a multi-generation family, it's an experience for everybody. There's people that would never consider a small ship, and then there's people like me that really prefer the small ship and right. don't want to go on the big one. It's an industry that has really matured, and there's a product and opportunity for everybody in the market. Although I will say, uh, on the design of their newest ships, Royal Caribbean has figured out a way to bring 6,000-plus passengers on board, and you don't always feel crowded. They figured out the design of the ship so you can... You have your space. Not only the space on board ship, but they figured out a way to get the passengers on and off ship yeah. as well that without feeling I like a crowd. Out. Yeah, that's an amazing way to do it. Quite remarkable. I still don't know how they do it, but they <laughs> do it. It's, I mean, now, have you also seen more and more overnights? Definitely. More experience in, in uh, overnight destination, as you said. Um, more extended stay, and everybody's looking for the more unique itineraries and making things different than anybody else. And my favorite, the repositioning crews. Those are I wonderful. I will book those anytime I can because I'm dealing anywhere between 17 and 24 days, most of them at sea. Nobody bothers me. They can't find me. I don't care where we're going. I agree with you. I love repositioning. I love sea days. But with technology being what it is, I stay in touch and I'm on my email all day long. I just don't admit I'm out of the office. No, they don't, know how, they don't need to know where you are. Only you need to know where you exactly. are. Exactly. That's the beauty of it, right? Absolutely. Just not in the office. Right. Call me a mob geek. Call me an organized crime aficionado, but I can't come to Las Vegas without talking to our next guest. I try to get him on the show every time we do it, because there's always something new happening there. It's not just old stuff, it's evolving. He's the president and chief executive officer of the Mob Museum. Jonathan Ullman, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Peter, thanks. I mean, we're now, uh, for those people who are not Netflix crazies, we're now addicted to The Irishman, um, and the a three and a half hour epic, which you probably watch in parts if you're watching it at home, because I don't know if you can get through all three and a half hours in one sitting. But what I love about what Scorsese does, whether it was Goodfellas or anything else, is his attention to historical detail, which is what you guys do at the museum. That, that's absolutely correct. And and I did sit through the entire movie in-, in uh, Well, of course, you what? would go right away, of course. <laughs> But, I mean, when you think about it, that movie deals with Jimmy Hoffa. It deals with, with the origins, let's say, of, of organized crime. And the name The Irishman has a particular uh, symbol because it wasn't just the Italians. That's absolutely right. So we, we uh, often think of the mafia and the Italian-based uh, 
uh, organized crime figures. But uh, we always like to say that we're non-denominational. We're, we're open to mobsters from all over. You're an equal opportunity yes, equal, mobster. Equal opportunity organized well, crime. Before you came out here, you were at a museum that I used to talk about all the time in New Jersey, the Liberty Science Center, right? Which which prided itself on being interactive. That's right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think about that quite quite a lot. We've, we've added many features throughout the museum uh, which are extremely interactive uh, and, you know, things like our, our wiretap exhibits where you can listen to actual evidence that were used to prosecute mobsters, but even uh, more contemporary. We have a whole new space, uh, for example, that's about forensic science. So we have an interactive crime lab where you can actually go in and you can try your hand at ballistics investigation or uh, DNA profiling or fingerprint analysis. You know, I'm reminded watching The Irishman, of course, Joe Pesci makes another appearance. Uh, you have an interactive experience in the museum with Tony the Ant Spilotro. Oh yeah, you uh, well we, yeah, you know it, for those it, of you, for those who watch yeah. Goodfellas, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah and he makes an appearance in a few few spaces. Actually, Casino is the one. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I mean that's a that, that's a quintessential Vegas mob movie. I mean if you want to see. Um, about the, the history of the skim and during the 70s and 80s in particular. I mean, that's a, it's a great movie, and we feature exhibits that are uh, all about that. Now, one of the things we talked about the last time you were on the show, you know, we, we have a president right now who wants to build a wall. You have a wall. We do. We have, uh, we have two walls of note. Peter, I, I need to tell you, you know, our okay. most iconic uh, exhibit and artifact is the wall from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So Which, by the way, was 1927. Seven. Yeah. So uh, that, um, oh, I'm 29. Okay. And, um, so that February 14th. Um, the St. Valentine's is, yeah, Day so Massacre. So this is during, the, uh, during Prohibition, the Beer Wars, Capone's gang in Chicago versus Bugs Moran's gang. And a uh, very infamous moment where seven members, seven individuals associated with the Moran's gang were lined up against that wall and, uh, and shot. Um, and that was, uh, that was really a turning point in the public perception of, um, of these mobsters who at one point were bringing, you know, giving the people what they, they want. You know, during, during Prohibition, a lot of people still wanted to hit the booze. And these I'm mobsters, yes, you know, it, it is surprising. Um, but, uh, uh, but with that increase in violence, you know, Al Capone became public enemy number one, and that was a real turning point. And, of course, they didn't get Al Capone for that. They got him for tax evasion. That's, that's right. Okay, that that's was right. wall number one. What's yeah. wall number two? Well, that, that's our global networks wall. So, you know, we, we have a lot of wonderful historic uh, artifacts and exhibits that talk about the origins of or organized crime in America starting at the turn of the 20th century. We also get into international organized crime things that are going on in the world today. And we have a Could I say the word? The Russians. Yeah, the Russians. So Russians, Chinese triads, Japanese Yakuza, outlaw motorcycle gangs around the world. So we have this, you know, this amazing interactive digital wall where you can go up and you can, you can look by organized crime group, uh, law enforcement group, different rackets, you know, geographically across. See, I always like to cross-reference my organized crime. I just need to know where I am. <laughs> yeah, and you can see video, uh, images, 
uh, about um, uh, all sorts of different, you know, it, it's terrible to say this, but this is, uh, there is never a shortage of organized crime for us to be examining. And you can explore this, we're constantly updating it, so things that are coming up in the news, you can you can see about it up on, on, our, on this global network's wall. We also do video conferencing, so when you talk about Russian organized crime, we, we will beam in experts uh, that can talk about these things live from around the world. So would I be correct in assuming that pretty soon you'll have some Ukrainians up there? Well, it's, uh, you know, we, uh, we might need I'm to I'm going to take that as a yes. We might need to let a little time pass and some <laughs> dust to settle, but we need to figure out how we're going to address some of these things that we're seeing in the news today. Yeah, but once it's confirmed, they become part of your exhibit. Absolutely. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Hey everybody, John Stewart here. I am here to tell you about my new podcast, The Weekly Show, coming out every Thursday. We're going to be talking about the uh, election, earnings calls. What are they talking about on these earnings calls? We're going to be talking about ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. I know you have a lot of options as far as podcasts go, but how many of them come out on Thursday? Listen to The Weekly Show with Jon Stewart wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.